really need our, our new study. And we feel like the Lord's going to bless that uh, as we one Sunday a month and then that third Sunday of the month. We are looking at the book of First John. Last time we finished our series on church leadership with the exposition of Brother Bob in the book of First Timothy chapter number three. And now we're going to have an expositional study of the word of God in the book of Third uh, John. Of course, this is one of the shortest books of the New Testament. It only requires just 14 verses. It is also one of the last books of the Bible that was written. Uh, John the Apostle is the author, and he penned this letter around the same time that he penned First and Second John, and that would be about the year AD 90. He most likely wrote the epistle from the city of Ephesus, where he ministered in his later years. And this letter is addressed to Gaius. You can pronounce it either way, Gaius or Gaius. And he was a friend of John's and possibly a leader of a local church in the province of Asia Minor. That would be in modern-day Turkey. That was a very important place where many local churches were inscripted. In fact, the seven churches in the book of Revelation were all in that same locality. Some believe this to also be the most personal of the epistles of John. But let's just get into the text and we'll examine here what the Holy Spirit moved John to write and then we will go from there. Let's begin here in verse number one, where John writes, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Notice, brethren, how John first begins by doing what was customary at that time, introducing himself. And he refers to himself here in this passage as the elder. It is really interesting that the apostle introduces himself in this way, but it's also such a good description of John at that time when you consider who he was and what he was doing in the church. Of course, he would have been quite young when he ministered with the Lord Jesus Christ during our Lord's earthly ministry. In fact, when you think about it, John may have only been in his 20s at that time when he was ministering with the Lord Jesus Christ. But now we're at about six years later, and John is an old man. He is also, at this time, the last surviving apostle. All of them, up to this point, had died a martyr's death. Even Paul the Apostle had died a martyr's death at this time, over 20 years before John writes this letter. So John, in this sense, is an elder simply because of age. But he's also an elder when you consider his office in the church at this time as well. He, of course, functioned as a spiritual leader in the church. He was the only apostle still alive, and he would have been respected as a very important authority yet in the church. In fact, I think you could make the argument that he was the most respected church leader alive at this time in the world as the last surviving apostle. So, John refers to himself as the elder. And then notice who he's writing to, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius. Now, just so you know, Gaius was John's friend, and he was a very prominent member in a particular local church there in Asia Minor. There are other men that have this name that you'll see throughout the New Testament, which may sound familiar to you. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll read of Gaius in there. You also read of a Gaius that Paul the Apostle baptized in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
But that was a very common name throughout Roman society at this time. So most likely this isn't the same Gaius when you consider when Acts was written and when 1 Corinthians was written. This is quite a few decades later. Could possibly be the same man, but most likely it is not. But John refers to this man as well-beloved here in this verse. And also when we get to verse 2, you'll see that he refers to him as beloved. Now, a lot of people point to the fact that in Scripture, the Scripture is referred to those who are believers as beloved by God, loved in a special way by God, and so forth. We don't deny that. But I think there's a little different meaning here, the way that John uses it. Obviously, Gaius would have been loved by the Christian community. And when you consider the context and the testimony that other Christians give concerning Gaius in this passage, I think that's why John is referring to Gaius as this well-beloved man, because he was loved by the Christian community at this time. We also see this terminology used of other well-beloved brethren in the New Testament. Just give you a couple examples of that. In Acts chapter 15, verse 25, when the apostles, the elders, and the brethren are writing about Paul and Barnabas, they refer to them in this way, our beloved Barnabas and Paul. And they could refer to them in that way because they were loved by the Christian community for their faithfulness and for their work. Also, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21, Paul refers to Tychicus as a beloved brother. So in the same way, Gaius was a well-beloved brother. He was respected because he was faithful, he had a godly testimony, and he was busy in the Lord's work. So John refers to him in this way. This well-beloved brother, and then John also gives his testimony of how he thinks of Gaius. He says, whom I love in the truth. Now this testimony about John and his relationship to Gaius is very important because, remember, we as Christians are to have a love for all people. We know that. Scripture teaches that. Jesus taught us that we are even to love our enemies. But there is a special love that believers have for others who know God and others who believe the truth of God's word. We see that in Scripture as well. A special love that exists between Christians. Of course... These are some of the basic truths that we see in Scripture. We're commanded by our Lord to love one another. And this is something that is simply a fruit that will be evidenced in the lives of all true believers. All true believers will have a special love for other Christians. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1, how, what Paul writes concerning this. This is really interesting. He writes, But as touching brotherly love, ye need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. In other words, I don't even have to give you a whole lot of directions concerning this because as believers, God is already teaching you to love your fellow Christians. You see, when God brings a person out of spiritual death and to spiritual life, that person not only begins to love Christ first and foremost, but they also begin to love others in a special way who are being conformed now to the image of Christ and who are in agreement with him or her concerning the truths of God's holy word. Obviously, all of us have people in our lives that we have a special love for, maybe even lost family members and friends and relatives and so forth, but there's a special love that exists 
between those who are in our spiritual family that we just don't have for the unbelievers. Perhaps 1 John chapter 3 and verse 14 puts it more clear than any other verse in the Bible when John writes this. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. So we see really clearly here, what is one of the fruits of having the new nature? Genuine love for others who are also Christians, who have also been born again. This is so practical for us, brethren, because we understand then how we are to love other people. We care for all. We love all. We desire the salvation of all. But there's a special love that exists between genuine Christians. But it is a love that is linked with and based upon the truths of God's word. Notice in the verse there, he says, The well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. So it's a love that's based on truth. So therefore, when you consider our modern day, it's impossible for me to have this special love for anyone who would call themselves a Christian, but they would be a progressivist Christian or a affirming Christian or a revisionist Christian who twists the scriptures to try to justify other people's immoral lifestyles and say that they are also Christians. You see, because such people believe in heretical teaching. Such people are actually false Christians who don't hold to the ancient historical and biblical faith that has been passed on generation by generation to us as is revealed in scripture so we don't just have a special love for anybody who calls themselves a christian no but who affirms the truths of god's word and who evidences in their life that they have too been regenerated by god's holy spirit it is a love based upon truth it is a love for Christ's sake. In other words, we love his people because we love him. In fact, Matthew Henry said it very well. He said, quote, to love our friends for the truth's sake is true love. You see, when you have a love for people that maybe in your unconverted days, let's say, that's not based on the truth of God's word. It's not a love that is based on reality in the way that things really are. So, for example, if a fellow Christian is living in disobedience to God's word, love would be you go to that person and you want to correct them. Or if you love someone even who's an unbeliever, in love, you want them to come to faith in Christ. But to just say, I love people, therefore I justify their sinful lifestyles, that's not true love because it's not love that is based upon the truth of God's word. We see the early Christians here and we see John the Apostle they love one another, and that love was a love in the truth of God's word. You know, some of us in here who were not raised in Christian homes, maybe we were raised in the unbelieving world, and you had people you loved, and you had people who were close friends of yours. But after you were converted to Christ, you had a desire to also see them come to know Christ. And if they didn't, eventually those relationships ended, and, and, and your friends that you had were gone. Because now the love that you have is a love that is based on the truths of God's word, and that completely changes relationships. 
One of the men I thought of when I was preparing this was Augustine, who was even with us in our church history that we have on early Sunday mornings. We've been learning about him. And we learned that prior to his conversion in his early 30s, he was a man that lived a really immoral lifestyle. Not long after his conversion, it is written that he was walking down the street, and a woman that he had known prior to his conversion called out to him from the window. And she said, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And he turned and said, yes, but it is not I. And then he kept on walking. You see, now that relationship was completely changed because now Augustine was living according to truth, and that affects relationships. So that's verse number one. Paul, or excuse me, John the Elder had a love for Gaius, and that love was based upon the truth of God. Let's now move on to verse number two, where he writes, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. Now let's look at this verse. There's, there's three points we can break this verse down into. First of all, notice John desired the prosperity or the success of his friend Gaius. In other words, he wanted things in his life to go well for him in his daily business in his daily activities. And that's really important and practical because think about it. As an apostle and as a shepherd in the church, John did not forget the importance of having concerns for such details of the everyday things of life that have an effect on us. And so John wanted things in Gaius's life to go well and smoothly for him. In a fallen world, oftentimes we have difficulties, tribulations, and temptations, and he wanted things to go well for Gaius. Secondly, John desired that his friend be in good physical health. Now, all of us in here, I think, are aware of the abuses of the modern-day health, wealth, and prosperity movement. But let's not also be imbalanced and think that our physical health is unimportant or that it does not affect our daily lives. Of course it does. Remember, sickness and bad health is a result of the fall. If Adam had not sinned, he would have never struggled in his physical health. But now we have health struggles, and as we get older, our minds begin to break down, our physical bodies begin to break down, and this is all a result of sin entering the world. Remember, as Christians, our future hope is the resurrection, when we will have new bodies and will never suffer those consequences of the fall again. But in the meantime, we desire to have good health, we desire the brethren to have good health, and we should be ready to help any who are struggling physically. Even Paul had a concern for Timothy's health when he wrote in 1 Timothy 5.23. Listen again to what he wrote. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. You see, Paul here did not act as if physical problems didn't matter. And in, in the same way, we should never think that well, the physical isn't important. We're just concerned about the state of the soul. Well, that is important too, but that doesn't mean we ignore the issues of physical infirmities. We should desire the good health of our brethren because it's really the greatest physical blessing that we have. And it's difficult to enjoy other earthly benefits without good health. And oftentimes it does affect our spiritual exercises when we're struggling physically. So John had that concern and we should as well. But then number three, John recognized and was no doubt happy about the good condition 
of David's soul. And that was of primary importance. Notice he says, Above all things he wished that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospered. Now just like ours, there was a time, no doubt, when Gaius' soul was sick with sin, when it wasn't in good health. But then our soul experiences good health when we come to faith of Christ, when our sins are forgiven. But then it can prosper and grow in that health as we are sanctified, as we become more like our Lord Jesus Christ. When we feed on the milk of the word that we can grow thereby, when our spiritual knowledge is increased, and when the new man is renewed day by day. Have you ever had this experience if you've been a Christian for a time and you're, man, you knew Christians when you were a younger believer and you had good fellowship with them, maybe service with them in the Lord, and then maybe you move or they move, and you don't see them for maybe a decade or so later, and you still have that love for them, but things are so different because you're so much more mature now as a Christian and you've learned so much. That's just a sign that your spiritual health has grown over time as it should. This is the desire of every faithful church leader. It was John's desire as well for Gaius. It was for others as well in Scripture. Listen to Paul, Titus 1.13. He says, Rebuke them sharply to Titus, that they may be sound or healthy in the faith. So through faithful rebuke, through the faithful teaching of God's word, he desired the spiritual health of the believers. 2 Peter 3.18, Peter said, Now grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So Peter, Paul, John, they all desired the prosperity of the souls of those that they ministered to. Now look at verse number three. John goes on to write, For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. Now John mentions here that certain brethren came and gave testimonies of the faithfulness of Gaius. These would have been traveling preachers, and we'll see that coming up in verses 5 through 8. But they gave testimony to John and to the church there in Ephesus concerning Gaius. These brethren testified to his steadfast faith in the truth and his obedient walk, which was the result of having faith in the truth. So you believe the truth, then it affects your life, and it affects your daily activities. The word here translated to mean walkest is, is used a lot throughout the New Testament, and it refers to our daily conduct. And this is so common throughout the New Testament. We'll take one example. Luke writes about Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1 and verse 6. Familiar verse, what does he say? And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So in their daily lives, of course they weren't perfect, but in general they were walking according to God's commandments, walking in righteousness. And that is what this walk refers to, our daily conduct. Notice also that this caused John to rejoice greatly. He rejoiced in Gaius' walk in his Christian testimony. And that serves as a wonderful example for us. We are to never envy the grace or the gifts that we see in others and other Christians, but rather we are to rejoice in them because think about it. When our love for Christ is primary, when we see gifts and graces in other Christians, we should rejoice because God is glorified in them. And in the same way, 
John would rejoice in this because he knew that Christ was going to be glorified through this testimony of Joseph. So he rejoices in this, and then he says now in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, brethren, oftentimes this verse, I think, has been misused in, even in our modern time. It's oftentimes used simply for the parent-child relationship. And I don't doubt that at times that can be applied to that when you think of parents uh, spiritually influencing their children and discipling them in the Lord. But that's not exactly what John is referring to here, simply the, the child-parent relationship and the family and the physical family. Rather, what John has in mind here is his, his own spiritual children in particular, those who came to faith in Christ through his own ministry. It seems Gaius had been one of these people. So when a person is used then as an instrument to lead others to Christ and to disciple them, there is often a close relationship that develops, and John and Gaius had this. And this can be used years down the road. If you meet people who've discipled you early on in your Christian walk, and you see them years and years later, that closeness oftentimes is still there because of the way that God used them to lead you to Christ and to build you up in the faith. And this is the kind of relationship that John and Gaius had. Paul refers to this same kind of relationship in his epistles. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 14 and 15. He says, As my beloved sons, I warn you, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, Yet have ye not many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. So what is Paul saying? Through his ministry, through his preaching, God brought others out of spiritual death into spiritual life. They were born again by the Spirit of God. And as a result of that, and as the discipling ministry then that Paul had, in a sense he was like a spiritual parent, and they were like his own spiritual children. 1 Thessalonians 2.11, he also says, as ye know how, ye, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. You see the relationship there. That's what John had with Gaius and his others. And he had no greater joy than to see that his spiritual children continued to prosper, their souls were prospering, and they continued to grow in the faith. Faithful ministers of the word will always desire that those under their charge will know and understand the word, number one, and secondly, that they will believe and obey the word. Friends, pray for us. According to Hebrews 13, 17, faithful leaders ought to shepherd, it says, with joy and not with grief. So as the soul of Gaius prospered, as he walked in the truth, John had no greater joy. You see, this is what he lived for. This was what was important to him as a man called by God to minister. Now let's look together at verses 5 and 6. We'll read these verses together. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. Now notice a few points here just from these verses. First of all, Gaius provided shelter for traveling believers. And we'll see here that they were, in this segment, they were traveling uh, preachers as well. And in this, he did a good and faithful work, as John says here in verse 5. So, again, he calls Gaius here beloved. 
in this verse, Gaius was loved by the brethren. But not only was he loved by the brethren, he loved the brethren in such a way. And he went out of his way to demonstrate that love for the brethren by providing hospitality to those in need. That's the first thing. Look secondly. These brethren whom Gaius helped testified of his charity before the church. So these preachers who traveled, they were, you'd call them itinerant preachers, and they ministered in other churches, they had so much love and goodness that was shown to them by Gaius, they couldn't help but to testify of his faithful work before the whole church as well and testify what he had done for them. But then third, notice how John encourages him to continue in this practice of supplying the needs of such men. He says here in verse number six, they have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. In other words, continue in this thing. Now, bringing them forward on their journey is interesting because it really means just after providing for them, maybe shelter and food and so forth, it refers to dismissing them in a friendly and honorable way and accompanying a person, maybe even sending servants with them for a time to make sure that they are safe on their journey and that they have everything that they need and that they're secure from danger as well. This is just simply biblical hospitality. It's kind of interesting. Um, as, a, as an American, I have had this same practice here that I kind of laugh about when I was a little kid about but I heard a testimony before of a friend who had who was from Australia, originally anyway. And when he came to the United States the first time, or the first couple times, I think, when he was at somebody's house for supper or something like that, when a good night of supper was over and fellowship, he goes out the door and then he turns around, ready to say a few more things to them, and the door just closes and just takes them out. Because in his culture, they walk the guests to the vehicle. And I've seen this, you know, with other friends before. It's you kind of show the person on out of the house. Uh, oftentimes we as Americans just kind of let them out the door and go. But it's interesting how in this culture oftentimes they would leave the person for a time making sure they were safe and making sure that they had everything they needed. This kind of language is used in other parts of Scripture. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 16, 6. And it may be that I will abide, yea, and winter with you, that ye may bring me on my journey whithersoever I go. There it is, bring me on my journey. Again, that has the understanding of leading him for a time, dismissing him in a friendly way, making sure he has everything he needs. In Acts 15 and verse 3, when Barnabas and Paul were traveling from Antioch to Jerusalem, it says that they were being brought on their journey by the church. There that same language is used. The church equipped them, made sure they had everything they needed, and that they would be safe. Genesis 18, 16, remember when Abraham met the three men, two of them were angels, one of them was the Lord. It says that he went with them, that's with the men, to bring them on their way. That was the common practice at that time. And that's what John is referring to here, making sure they have what they need, leading them forth after a godly sort. And it's, it's after a godly sort because it's simply imitating God who is kind and who is merciful. So he encourages him to continue in this. Now, finally, let's look at verses 7 and 8. He wants him to continue this work because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. So here John gives the reason why he wanted Gaius 
to continue to do what he was doing. Notice a few things. First, he tells us what the motive was of these men. The purpose of their ministry was to glorify God. He says, because of his name's sake, they went forth. It was for the glory of God that they ministered. They wanted to see people repent. They wanted to see people believe the gospel. They wanted to see people obey, honor, and worship God. So they went out for the sake of the name, that men would turn from sin and give worship and honor to the Lord alone. But he gives the second reason why he wanted to see continuation of these men. And that's simply, no one else would support them if the church didn't support them. Notice, they went out for the sake of the name, and he said, taking nothing of the Gentiles. Now, these men, that tells us, probably were converted Jews, and they went out to preach amongst the Gentiles, you could say as missionaries or as evangelists. And the only way that these men could have financial support is if they worked to support themselves or if the churches would support them because they wouldn't have wanted to take support from those they were preaching the gospel to and ministering to because that could lead to the misunderstanding that they really did not care for the souls of those who had been preaching to. The glory of God wasn't the primary focus. That could lead to that way of thinking. So if the church did not support them, no one would support them to be given to that work. So because... They went out for the glory of God for the sake of the name. And because no one else would support them, Gaius continued in this work. Often we even see that Paul labored in this way. He would support himself. But it has to be done for the glory of God. If you've been with us again in our church history series, you'll know that early on in our study, we studied the earliest Christian documents, the earliest Christian writings that we have after the New Testament was completed. And one of those early documents was a document written about A.D. 100, so around the time of John's death. And it really was a, a discipleship manual. And in that document, it describes for us some warnings that if Christians showed hospitality to traveling preachers, who they were to show hospitality to and who they were not to show hospitality to. And for us in our modern day, it can sound kind of interesting, but if you put yourself in their context, and you didn't have as much possessions and food and so forth as we have, you can understand why these warnings are given in this way. Let me just read some of them to you. It says, quote, Let every apostle that cometh to you be received as the Lord, but he shall not remain except one day. But if there be need, also the next. But if he remain three days, he is a false prophet. In other words, he's... Obviously not just needing your help to key him along in his itinerant ministry. He's feeding off you. He's mooching off of you. Don't trust him. He's just using you. Don't give him any more. And then they say this. And when the apostle goes away, let him take nothing but bread until he lodges. But if he asks money, he is a false prophet. So you see how they had these warnings. These are those you support. These are those you don't support. These are the ones you know they just want money. These are the ones who are really in it for the sake of the name. Then notice here in our text, John says that by supporting such men, we will be partners with them in this work. He says in verse 8, We therefore ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Now think about this, brethren. A lot of times we don't think about this. When we support brethren who, let's say, preach the gospel or who minister the word, 
and they're faithful, they're genuine, they will be rewarded, let's say, if others come to Christ through their ministry. But if we support them and that support was, was needed for them to go and do the work that they are doing, we also will be rewarded for those souls that were converted. Or if they have a ministry where they're ministering to the brethren, building them up in the faith, they will be rewarded for that, but so will their supporters as well. John says here that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. Oftentimes we might not see what's done because they're located somewhere else. We can't actually be there to see the ministry happening. But nevertheless, that support, not only will they be rewarded for their work, but we will be rewarded as well. I mentioned this past week to my that saved people from trafficking. And up to this point, they saved 3,000 people. And not only do they bring them out of that horrific torture that they are under, they're absolutely sure to give them the gospel and put them in a place where they will learn the word of God and be supported so that they can live a regular life again and so that their health can be put in order. And oftentimes, it costs $3,000 to $6,000 to have a rescue. But you think about it, when people like that are supported, those who support them will also be rewarded for their work. Now, oftentimes, we don't think about it that way, but that's exactly the description we see here. This is the opposite support of that we see in Second John, or the opposite. Look back there just at Second John. Look at verses 10 and 11. Here again is the warning of who we're not to help. Second John, verses 10 and 11 says, if there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. So don't give them hospitality. This is false teachers in the context, and in the historic context, he's talking about the Gnostics who had a false Christ. We were not to show him hospitality. Why? Because if you do so, you're going to be guilty for the deeds that he's doing too. But in the ways that you help those who are faithfully ministering, you'll be rewarded as they will be comforted and faithful in their ministry. Now, brethren, before we come to the Lord's Supper, let's just look at two practical points as well that maybe help us find something to pull from this passage, verses 1 through 8 of Third John. First practical point that I want to mention here, notice how important, brethren, the church was in the lives of these early believers in a couple different ways. First of all, notice how Gaius was devoted to the work of service in his life. He adjusted his life to be able to support those who were ministering the word. And a practical thing that we, that you and I can learn from this, is all of us in our Christian life, I think at times have to stop and ask, how can I adjust my life to better serve the Lord in his church? No matter what service that might be. It can be things that seem to be small to us or things that seem to be bigger to us. But whatever our calling is, every one of us has a work to do. And so the question is, is how can our lives be in order so that we can fulfill that calling of God in our lives with God's people? And that's what Gaius did. He went out of his way to be able to take care of these traveling preachers. And that took time. That took effort. That took work. Our prayer should be that we too would be faithful servants as 
where God has us and how he would have us to be. It might be feeding the flock, providing for the needs of the saints, evangelistic outreach, supporting the work of the ministry in some way. Some of us in here, I think, would say now that we're a little older and we have families, that we're really thankful for the years previous, before we were married maybe or before we had children. The time, just one example, the time that we were able to spend out on the streets preaching the gospel, handing out tracts, talking to others. I know before I was married and before I had children, just an example, I had a lot of time as a single man. And I could use that time to devote it to these different works. And I'm sure many of you could think of that too. You're thankful for the time that you use for the glory of God. And now maybe your life has changed, your circumstances have changed, but now you have a different work to do in the church. But whatever your station is in life, examine that and ask, how can I faithfully serve the Lord in his church? All of us obviously could do that. Secondly, notice how these traveling preachers ministered in one area, but then they would report to the church in another area. And what we see here is that their itinerant ministry was in connection with local churches. In other words, they were not lone ranger missionaries. They were not independent evangelists. They recognized that they were a part of a body, and that body was made up of local churches. And so they would work with them, and they were accountable to them, and there was an authority in their lives, even concerning their ministry. That's very, very important for us to consider. Now, thinking in of our local context, I was talking to a brother the other day, and I think he made a really good point. He talked about when he was young, late 80s, early 90s, he was he kept being told of a massive exodus in Bismarck, Mandana, people out of the Roman Catholic churches. And I don't doubt that, of course, people were converted and people were coming out of Catholicism and so forth and, and coming to faith in Christ. But you have to ask yourself the question, where is, was this, where did this massive exodus go? And you know what the truth of the matter is? A lot of it was a leaving off of that dead traditionalism and formalism simply to go to a rock concert, in all honesty, where the word isn't taught really strongly, and it's just a deadness in a different way. Instead of a dead formalism, it's a dead rock and rollism in the churches. And so if we're leaving something, we have to ask, what are we leaving it for? And sometimes there was a leaving of Catholicism for no church at all. There, at times, is a reaction to a religious institution with a hierarchy and a really strong controlling authority. And then the pendulum swings the other direction to where there is no church and no authority at all. But all of us need to be challenged to do something. Can we find one example, just one example, in the New Testament of any believer ever who was not a part of a local church? Zero. Zero. And in fact, if you look at the early writings that we have that I talked about earlier, they warned if someone doesn't join himself to the church, he's not a believer. Do you see what their way of thinking is? In other words, when brethren, when we look at the New Testament, never is it, it's just me and my Bible under a tree. 
Never. No religious institution for me, just me and my Bible under a tree. Never, ever do we see that. Faith in Christ includes connection to a local body of believers. Church membership, support of the ministry, busy in the work, that is always built Think about also the next year and a half. I mean, I'm just saying, again, having our priorities in order. With this whole election season kicking in and all the things, at times, brethren, I get a little worried that Christians are tempted to put their hope in some kind of political candidate who will never, ever save the country. Never. And we have to ask, what should our priority be? Yes, we should be involved in family, church, politics. I'm not denying that. We should have involvement. But our hope cannot be in any political candidate, ever. The only way that we will see improvements is if there is a revival in our nation. So what should be the top priority? Well, the top priority should be in our own lives, being faithful as Christians, being faithful in our families, being faithful in the church, faithful to spread the word of the gospel, faithful to pray. In fact, we should spend much more time in prayer than we should being focused on political candidates who will never save the country anyway. I mean, what's one of the problems throughout the Bible-believing churches in our country? Look at the prayer meetings. A lot of them are no longer existent, and the churches are empty. And we wonder why we're going the direction we are. You see, there's not a humbling of ourselves to recognize there is a need of massive repentance. And a lot of these political candidates that people put their trust in compromise with sodomy or certain kinds of abortion, abduction, rape, incest, and so forth. They're not people who submit to the law of God at all. You see, at times we need to humble ourselves and ask, what is really needed? And our hope must be in God, and we must walk in His ways and not put our hope in that which is completely vain and Second and last practical point, and this I'll just draw from verse number seven. Because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. What we see there, brethren, is this. Again, these men had a right motive in the ministry. And that's very important. We need to consider even our own church. It's never the pastor's church. It's never my own church, it's Christ's church. The goal of ministry is not to build a business or a ministry name. And a lot of people do that even with their church names. The way they have videos and posters and stuff. It's like advertising a business oftentimes. But that's not the goal of ministry. The goal of ministry is to lift up Christ's name. It's to be Christ-centered. And to do everything to take the attention off of man and put it on the Lord Jesus Christ. Obviously, we want to see sinners repent, believe the gospel, and then come to faith and eventually a living God and bring honor to him. That's what these men did. They went out for the sake of the name John. And this is in complete unity with what we read about in Acts chapter 15. These men were ministering to the Gentiles. What do we read about? What does James say in Acts 15 when God started to save people among the Gentiles? Let me read it for you. Acts 15, 14. He says, God did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. You see, where the fruit of that? 
Why is God saving Gentiles? For his own namesake. For his own great namesake. And that should also be our motive as well, our goal as well, that when we teach the gospel or even when we disciple others in the Lord, not for attention for ourselves, not to build up a ministry name for ourselves, but rather so that man would get out of the way and that God would just completely be glorified in him. And that should be our goal. It must always be for God's glory and not man's. That must always be our motive, just as it was here with Our Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture that really, as we read it, it can seem so simple, and it is, but yet there is so much in there for us to know and apply, to believe and to understand. And Lord, we pray that you would take this passage of Scripture and the other parts in Scripture that we looked at and help us to believe them rightly and help us to Walk these truths out in our own church, in our own lives. And Lord, in this, may you again receive all the glory. And Lord, now as we come to the table and we remember what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us. Lord, we give you thanksgiving for sending your son to die for his church. And now we have the great privilege of being ambassadors and going out for the sake of of his glorious name. To you be the glory now, we pray.